I'm Richard Locke, Provost of Brown University, and this is Faculty in Focus, where I talk with some of Brown's most compelling faculty about the stories behind their research. Today, I'm talking with Professor John Friedman. John combines economics, big data, and public policy to understand why some children rise out of poverty and some don't. He's especially interested in measuring upward mobility, or what we call the American dream, whether children from low-income families grow up to earn more than their parents. John, thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Rick. So much of your research is about how a child's environment affects where they end up in life. How would you describe your own childhood and how it affected the work you do now? So I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I was born in 1980, and hard as it is to believe now where Cambridge has become an incredibly affluent suburb, Cambridge had quite a bit of manufacturing back in the day. The Boston area looked very similar to the way Buffalo looked in 1980. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I arrived at uh, MIT in 1983, and I remember that Cambridge was populated with dilapidated factory buildings. And if you stayed in Kendall Square too late at night, you know, you risk getting beaten up and stuff like that. So it was really, was I, I do remember was that. Was the Neko factory still open? The Neko factory was still open, exactly. and you could smell it. You could smell it. I grew up in a affluent family, and I got into math, I was into science, but that question of what was going on and what could be done really lingered in the background. And even though I was really good at science and math, the questions that I always gravitated to in school were the ones that were about people, you know, history and social studies. And when I finally found economics, it was really a meeting of the two where I could take these quantitative tools that I liked and I found that I was good at, but apply them not to study the properties of like a missile or, you know, the electromagnetic properties of a substance, but rather think about how people behave in the world and how policy could help change that for the better. So uh, you studied economics, both undergrad and grad at Harvard. And you've said that during that time, the availability of what's called administrative data revolutionized the kind of research that you do. So for people who don't know, can you explain what administrative data are and how did the use of administrative data affect the kinds of questions that you could ask? So administrative data are data that have been collected, as the name sounds, for the purpose of administering some government program typically. So examples are like the government data that the IRS collects for the purpose of administering the tax system or the data that a school system collects in order to keep track of all of its students. Administrative data have a number of incredible advantages over what's been more traditionally used in social science research, which are survey data. So to take the tax example, the IRS spends a lot of resources each year making sure that everyone files if they're supposed to file for their taxes and that the reports of income and everything else that they send in are accurate. In contrast with survey data sets, it's collected solely for the purpose of research. And while that might sound like it's an advantage because you could ask exactly the questions that you wanted, and of course in some cases it is, the unfortunate thing is it leads to much less complete and much less accurate answers. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So let me give you an example of how this just opens up the door 
not only to answer questions better than one could before, but to ask entirely different questions that were wholly infeasible before. The first paper that I wrote with administrative data studied the effects of a program called Project STAR in Tennessee, where they took kindergartners and they randomized them across classrooms within a school. They were trying to understand whether classroom size was helpful or not. In short, the kids who were in the smaller classrooms did a lot better on tests immediately, but then by the time you get to about fourth grade, there's no difference anymore. We wanted to study how these kids did in the long term. Did they go to college? Were they more likely to earn higher wages? Were they more likely to be living in good neighborhoods when they grew up and got into their 20s and even 30s? With a survey data set, we would have had to find all of these kids, ask them what they earned, whether they went to college, which just is a totally impossible task. Instead, we could just find all of these students in these various data sets that had already been created for other purposes. And in fact, we were so successful at finding these students in these data sets that we were more likely to know what a child's wage was at age 25 than the original study was to know where they were at the end of kindergarten because some kids left the district and they weren't able to track them down. So in this case, what we were able to show was that being in that small classroom had incredibly large effects. The difference over the course of a lifetime for these students was about $320,000 collectively for the classroom. And that's you know, just for a, a single year of having this better experience. And so that really highlighted for me both the potential that education could have to alter children's trajectories, but also the incredible power of these administrative data sets to help answer those questions that seemed most important. Oh. So continuing with the research that you did on education, some of your early research focused on how teacher quality affects student income. So what did that research uncover? That's right. After studying this Project STAR intervention, we knew that classroom environment mattered, but we didn't have a great sense of what exact part of it mattered. Why did it matter and how could one change that? So we embarked on our next project, a very similar long-term evaluation of educational settings, here focused on teachers. We tried to answer three different questions. The first one was just whether there were consistent differences between teachers that could be measured in the near term. You see some teachers with kids with a very high test score, other teachers have kids with a much lower test score. Is that really because the teacher's better or did they just happen to have students who were better at learning from richer families? You can imagine all of the potential differences. So we got data from uh, New York City and we were able to show pretty definitively that not all of the differences between teachers were the effect of the teachers themselves, but there were really large differences between teachers. The next question then was, were these differences just because some teachers were teaching to the test better, or were they actually generating the type of deep learning that altered the long-term trajectories of these students? And what we found was that teachers that increase test scores have incredibly large lasting benefits for students. Students are more likely to go to college. Girls are more likely to grow up and avoid having kids as teenagers. Boys are likely to avoid going to prison. A single year with a really good teacher, like a top 5% teacher relative to an average teacher, is worth about a quarter of a million dollars to the students collectively in that classroom in net present value terms. 
So that's an incredibly interesting finding. What do you think is driving it? What is it about you know, teacher quality that drives such an incredible impact? So I think it has partly to do with just teaching skills, academic skills that students need to know. But I think another large part of it is teaching, in most part indirectly, but possibly directly at some times, what they call non-cognitive skills, like the ability to sit and behave in a group, or the ability to focus and finish a worksheet, even though that's not the most exciting activity at that moment, to teach those skills to students, which would then go on to benefit them in their job, in their further educational career. It's a little bit hard to measure some of these non-academic, non-cognitive skills, but in some data sets where we have measured them, they seem to persist quite a bit more. And so if I had to guess, it's not just about being a better teacher of the material per se, it's about helping students with all of the different aspects of how to behave and how to be part of a group of people that are working towards a common goal. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now that research was noticed by President Obama, who mentioned it in his 2012 State of the Union address. Did you get a heads up that he was going to do that? So the paper that I've described on teacher effects, it came out publicly on January 5th, 2012. And I remember that date very clearly because my first son was born on January 4th, 2012. My head was all over the place at that point, but I knew that the Council of Economic Advisors director, the late Alan Kruger, had reached out about this. So we certainly knew people had known about it, but I can tell you, even when you work in the White House, they don't really tell you what's gonna be in the speech beforehand. It's a very closely kept secret. So I really did not get a heads up. And where were you when he gave that speech? We'd put my son to bed and I had gone out to buy some more diapers. And I was driving back the radio happened to be turned to NPR, and so the State of the Union was on. And the president comes around, he starts talking about education, he starts talking about teachers. At a time when other countries are doubling down on education, tight budgets have forced states to lay off thousands of teachers. And I said, wow, you know, this is really getting quite close to what we just talked about, and then uh, he quoted the research directly. We know a good teacher can increase the lifetime income of a classroom by over $250,000. And so that was pretty cool, and it really was a poignant moment that convinced me that research like this actually could have an impact on how policymakers thought. Too often, you worry that you spend a lot of time writing an article, and then it sits in a journal and seven people read it and it doesn't have that impact despite all the work you did. So this was really affirming of the value of the work that I was doing. Eventually, that attention got you a position in the White House. So what did you do there? And how did that work change the way you conduct your academic research? So I went to the White House to work at the National Economic Council. Any domestic economic issue that hits the level of the White House has to have somebody to organize it and figure out internally what our policy is gonna to be to help communicate that policy, both to the media and to stakeholder groups, to help talk to whoever the relevant partners are on Capitol Hill. And that's what I did. I saw us make decisions that were very tightly based on research, 
And I also saw us make decisions based on absolutely no research whatsoever, and even in the face of good research going the other direction. And so that was really a formative experience, even though I've not gone back to policymaking, it's something that's made me think very hard about how the work that I do might influence policy, which questions to pursue and how to go about them. So while you were at the White House, you started linking data on children's incomes as adults with where they grew up. What did this research reveal about the link between upward mobility and geography? So that's exactly right. While I was in the White House, a bunch of other people on my research team started asking about the long-term effects of kids, but through the lens of intergenerational mobility, which is essentially focusing on the long-term outcomes of kids who grow up in poor or otherwise disadvantaged backgrounds, specifically with the goal to figure out how we can improve their trajectory. Previously, most researchers had estimated the link between parents' income and kids' income at a national level. They'd done this in lots of different countries, and they'd found that the U.S. had more persistence of inequality than in other countries. That is, a kid who grew up in a poor family in the U.S. was more likely to be relatively poor in the U.S. than if they'd grown up in a similarly poor family, say, in Canada or Denmark or some country like that. When presented with those differences, of course, what you want to do is to figure out what's going on in the place with higher mobility and Maybe that can help you learn what would be helpful to improve upward mobility in the U.S. But looking to Denmark, there are so many differences between Danish society and the U.S. It's just hard to know what contributes to upward mobility and just what is a difference that is unrelated. And so instead of looking between the U.S. and Denmark, what my colleagues figured out was that the U.S. is such a large place, we can find islands of mobility that are just as good, if not better than Denmark, in parts of the U.S. And in fact, if you look across the country, there are incredible differences in the upward mobility of kids who grow up in very similar families, but in different cities. So where do you see those kind of dramatic differences? So just to give you one example, a child who grows up from an average poor family, say a family earning about $25,000 in Charlotte, North Carolina, will on average basically not earn any more than $25,000 when they themselves grow up. But a family growing up in Dubuque from the same poor family in Iowa will earn nearly twice what their parents earned. And that's just one example. There are many, many differences like that. So how do you make sense of these findings? What do they teach you? This really demonstrated how we could take these big data and not only measure upward mobility over long periods of time, but also do it in a way where we could really break things down to figure out where things were working, where things weren't working, and then how to try to move from that towards policy. So if I understand correctly, to make an even clearer connection between these data and potential policy, you created something called the Opportunity Atlas. What does the Opportunity Atlas do? Even though Dubuque is a lot closer to home than Denmark is, it turns out if you go to the mayor of Charlotte and when he asks you, what should I do in my city to increase upward mobility, if your answer is, go look at what's going on in Dubuque, you get a very funny look and then he stops listening to you as somebody who seems to be saying something that is relevant. And so 
even though these regional differences in the US were very striking, in order to really get down to a level where we thought this could inform policy, we needed to study upward mobility at a very local level. That's what the Opportunity Atlas is. It's a publicly available data set that's available on the website, opportunityatlas.org, that's a collaboration between our research group and the census. What it shows is that these same differences in, in outcomes that I gave you between Dubuque and Charlotte, you can actually find those very same differences between two neighborhoods in Charlotte, often that are no more than a few miles away, and in some cases that are literally across the street from one another. What explains these differences between one neighborhood and another? And does moving a block or two really change a child's chance of rising out of poverty? So it really can. And it really seems to be about the people you're living with and the effect that those people have on kids. What I think even more so reinforces this fact that it's about people is you can look spatially to see where these correlations decay. If I'm living in one block, is it the share of two-parent families and the employment rate on my own block that matters? Is it the next block over? Is it the blocks within a half a mile, within a mile? What, what is it that really matters? And what we found on that dimension is that it's an incredibly local set of factors that matter for you. Beyond about a half a mile, nothing seems to matter. And even within that, it's what's going on within about two or 300 yards that really matters. And why? That's because those are the people you're interacting with. If you see other adults in your neighborhood, and I think in particular, the data suggests it's the adults that look like you that matter. If you see other adults who look like you going to work in the morning, coming home to being with their families, and engaging in the community when they're not at work, then I think that sets up kids on a, just a much different trajectory than in places where the adults kids see as mentors and role models are not going to work, they're not coming home to their families, and they're not engaged in efforts to collectively improve the community. That's not a precise prescription for what to do to actually improve a neighborhood, but I think it gives a sense of the types of things we should look for in neighborhoods, and then we can compare that with the supports that neighborhoods actually have and try to fill in the gaps. So you co-founded Opportunity Insights in 2018. And since then, it's received millions of dollars from donors such as Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg. With all this financial support, what do you hope to do next? So the big new thing that we've started as part of Opportunity Insights is the ability to really focus on policy as not just some side business off the research, but as a core mission of the organization that we're part of. The link to policy has always been something that I think has been incredibly important in the work that I do. And as I've continued to do research, thinking about upward mobility and intergenerational mobility, what I've seen is that you can't just publish the paper, put it on your website, and let someone else take it from there. That can be helpful in certain contexts, but we are in a position to drive the work beyond that, to go beyond the research and really think about what policies could come out of the research to really improve things in practice. And so with Opportunity Insights, we have a dedicated policy team who thinks about and then works with 
policy partners in communities, in schools, in state governments, all over the place, in foundations, to try to implement policies that are inspired by the work or to try to advise people who are implementing their own policies, how could they adjust them to reflect the insights of the research. So John, standing back and thinking about all of this work that you've done, using administrative data to try to better understand social mobility, what's the big picture? What do you want to achieve with this kind of research trajectory? So our mission at Opportunity Insights is to develop scalable policy solutions that will empower families throughout the United States to rise out of poverty and achieve better life outcomes. It is an incredibly large goal, one which I will never achieve in my lifetime, but the challenge and the reward is in making progress. And even though that progress, I think, is incremental, that is how progress needs to be made on a problem as large as this. There are no magic bullets. There are no magic solutions that will fix all of this. What we have to do is chip away at it bit by bit, and that's how we're going to make progress. John, it's, it's been really great talking to you today about your important research. And I just want to thank you for all that you're doing here at Brown and thank you as a citizen for all the great work that you're doing in the country. Thank you so much for this interview and for all of your support here at Brown. It's been great to talk with you, Rick. You've been listening to Faculty in Focus, brought to you by the Office of the Provost at Brown University. Our show is edited and produced by Megan Hall, Brown Class of 04. Sound design and theme music is by Tom Van Buskirk, Brown Class of 04. And I'm Richard Locke, Provost of Brown University.